Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. All these girls gonna be in the league? Hello, gorgeous. Female fight club. All men must die, but we are not men. Damn it, Kristen! What do you think happened to Karen? Lauren. Girl, her name is Kimberly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 19 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we once had optimism and joy, and now see only sadness and garbage men. Uh, actually, there's still some joy to be mined from this world. As always, I am Kristen Lopez. Uh, we do not have Karen Peterson this week. She is uh, braving the cold to hopefully see some good movies at Sundance, but she will be later joined by Kimberly Pierce. Yay! And Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. Lauren and I are not going to be at Sundance because um, I don't know about you, Lauren, but I am poor. I don't like snow, and I'm poor. It yes. was my Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got a hotel room for Christmas. Ooh, you know what? Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes that's really all you want. I got hotel uh, pillows for Christmas. Ooh, ooh. So there you go. That means you're an adult. <laughs> exactly. I asked hotel pillows and an air purifier for Christmas. So, Very nice. yeah, I know, I know. This is when you know that you your childlike soul has died. We have uh, some news, some garbage men, some trailers, all sorts of stuff. Where do we want to start on the wall o things? Get the garbage people out of the yeah, room? Okay. Let's... Let's get the big one out of the way. <laughs> Aziz Ansari. So the original article, which you can read at babe.net, was uh, from a woman who had said that she went on a date with Aziz Ansari and that it was, for her, confusing because she was unclear about whether it was assault or no. It was really just looking at the gray areas of, of dating at this point. She never went out of her way to accuse Aziz Ansari of, like, rape or, or assault, but she did say that the the experience felt like it was something that she was coerced into and that she did not want. This has opened a floodgate of people commentating on the situations. There are two camps that this is sexual harassment, this is sexual misconduct, and there are others that say this is just a date gone wrong. Where do we all fall on this personally? Lauren, I know you have thoughts. <laughs> uh, I, I have thoughts and I've expressed them very loudly in places, uh, particularly at men who have decided that they needed to, to inform me that I was wrong. And who have also subsequently apologized for informing me that I was wrong. So I'll give them credit for that. Oh, that's um, nice. Yeah, yeah. No, that's I a step. That was nice. <laughs> it was. It was. I, was. I was pleased by that. One of, the, one of the issues that I think is this is drawing out is the fact that I'm certain that Ansari thinks there was nothing wrong with what they did or what they were doing and that that he wasn't doing anything wrong. Obviously, this woman did. And at least if we're, if we're going to take her account at face value, which is what I think we should do, she said, you know, she said no. She passively resisted. She kept on telling him to slow down, kept on telling him, can we stop? Can we not do this? And he kept on pushing it. And I, I think as women, that's an experience that a lot of us have, mm -hmm. at least as uh, straight women. That's an experience that a lot of us have of where a guy is not necessarily, you know, he's not holding her down and raping her. He's not even, you know, maybe she's interested in doing some, in doing some things with him, but at a certain point, it gets, it gets to a point where she's like, I don't want to do this. I'm not comfortable with this. I'm not, I don't like where this is going. I want to stop. 
And he's like, well, but I'm not going to stop. And so that's that's kind of the point that, that I was at, that this, it is quite obvious that she was not particularly consenting, either verbally or physically, to what was going on. And that he, particularly as a dude who is postured as a male feminist for so long, who like talks about how much he knows about women and how much he understands women and the things that women go through, this is a really gross thing. This is something that he should have known about, uh, as, as numerous other writers have said. I'm on her side, and I'm on the side that this, this is, at, at best, this is dubious consent, which is not consent at all. I know that a lot of people have looked at this as just kind of a bad date. I, a lot of the older generation has been seeing that. I know that I was asking family members what they felt about this, and a couple people, you know, said, well, you know, she kind of seemed like she wasn't, she was kind of like a snob, you know, because the article includes that something, he made her drink red wine, and she only liked white. You know, that she seemed like she had expectations for this date that weren't met. I was like, yeah, I don't really see how that's valid. <laughs> I was going to say, how is that valid? And, and I think it's making a lot of, and I, I know somebody probably said it more succinctly than I do, I really think this opens the conversation to the next part of what Me Too is about, yeah. which is, it's easy to condemn Harvey Weinstein for his actions, because A, he's, you know, the, we know what assault looks like. You know, it's that forcefulness. Mm -hmm. It also helps that Harvey Weinstein looks like Harvey Weinstein. He's not attractive. And I've been saying on podcasts when I talk about rape culture, it's incredibly hard to prosecute because you need the perfect looking victim and the perfect looking mm -hmm. rapist. Mm -hmm. Harvey Weinstein, better or worse, fits the bill. Aziz Ansari though, you know, yeah, he promotes himself as his feminist ally. He says that because he's unattractive and because he respects women, that he doesn't date a lot. You know, I think that that, again, makes you question the nature of, is this all the front? Just reading his arguments, you know, that she brings up where he's just like, oh, okay, you know, why don't we just make this the second date? You know, because it's the, it, yeah. the, the coercion. It really makes you think of, how we've been indoctrinated in relationships to mm -hmm. look at, and I know a lot of other people have said this, so I would never say I coined the term, yes means yes and no means convince me. And you see that in film. I mean, how many times in old movies, we've all seen old films where that rough wooing, that whole, you know, I'm gonna invade your space and then plant one on your mouth and you're not gonna be cool with it in, this, in the moment, but you're gonna, you're obviously already into him, so you're gonna fall for it. You even see that in contemporary films where like the guy like kisses kisses a woman and she slaps him and then she kisses him again and it's like oh actually she wanted it it's that whole repetition of that element of like yes that she doesn't keep, want it but she keep does. trying she'll get into it yeah. at some point <laughs> exactly and i think that's what we see perfectly with this article is that when it didn't work the, with the first tact he tried another he knew what she was implying with you know her body language and her comments and would try would go another route does that make him good or bad i think that's what we need to we need to start confronting the gray areas not the black and white rape and assault but the 
the fact that so many women on Twitter have have admitted that they've gone through a you know a sexual encounter because they feared what would happen if they outright said no or if they mm-hmm. left or I think of that really great it's the only moment in mother that I think rings true it's the scene with the guy who's trying to get Jennifer Lawrence's character to give him her number and she's just like no no I don't want to and he's like well maybe you want to get to know me and she's like no I don't want to get to know you and then he calls her a cunt like that is what every woman experiences with men and they don't want to to do that so they try whatever they can to avoid it and I think that's what we need to be examining and it's like you never know when the guy will take you know no for an answer or when right it will escalate right now it's turned I had a, I had a friend when we were talking about this article who was saying that they felt that the person shouldn't have been named. That if the intent was to show the gray areas, they could have just said this person was a celebrity and left it at that. Because now the tide has turned to looking at how babe the writers there are acting like they've got this big get. And I haven't really been following what the issue is. The issue seems to be about journalistic integrity. The writer of the article had, you know, someone published an email that she had written in response to being asked for an interview that was very sort of snarky. You know, this is a 22-year-old journalist who is obviously not particularly schooled in in journalism. The, The problem that I have with all of this stuff is that it's a distraction, or it's coming off as a distraction, that now suddenly, you know, Jezebel published an article about it. And it's like, okay, there, there are decent questions to be asked about journalistic integrity and how journalists are covering this stuff. At the same time, we are now getting off of the topic of Aziz Ansari and this particular kind of sexual misconduct, mm-hmm. right? And so we're, we're moving away from that. And I keep on going, like, how have we, within like a couple of days, managed to completely walk away from the fact that here is a very high profile, again, male feminist. I think that Ansari's persona is very important here. Yes. So we've managed to walk away from that. And we're now talking about the journalistic integrity of these, of the people that published the article. And it's just like, the story itself is important. I want to talk about the story. I want to stop talking about whether or not this woman should have gone to Jezebel instead. Well, there's a really interesting article. It's courtesy of Vox. It's by Carolyn Framke. And she is deconstructing the issues that a lot of journalists have with this article. It's more pithy than it is stinging. So, like, she brings up the fact that even though the oldest editorial staffer there, I guess, is 25, that a lot of the writing sensibility they felt was more opinion-based so like I guess there's a section in the original article that talks about the woman in question's outfit and choosing clothes which they felt really underscores like the seriousness of this this piece that I can understand the argument that Ansari only got six hours to respond versus the journalistic standard of 24 I don't know if I necessarily think that that's a detriment all I can say is that I feel like this is muddying the waters in a way that isn't helpful. And that could very well be it. I mean, I, I think the problem is, is with these allegations, and especially ones written by women or produced by women-focused websites, the impetus is so on them 
And, and I, I would say that it's on all of us. Anytime we write, how many times when we write a piece do we have people say, this part's inaccurate? And then, like, suddenly it becomes you're a shitty yeah. writer. Mm -hmm. You are the gatekeeper for your facts. And, like, if anyone is wrong, then therefore your entire argument is false. And I don't think that's the right way to work. But especially when you're dealing with these accusations in this time, you really gotta be on your game. And publishing this with a very quick turnaround and fact-checking it the same day you talk to the person who's putting it out there? I don't think Ronan Farrow wrote that Harvey Weinstein article with, you know, a couple mm -hmm. hours. Mm -hmm. You know, that was months of, of legwork. I'm not saying this woman's story shouldn't have been told, but damn it, you need to have every fact on lock because people are going to attack you. I'm sure Ansari's people are going to throw something out there. I mean, you need to have 100% be able to stand behind this and have nothing out of place. From that level, I think that there needs to be some questioning of it. I'm not questioning the story and the content. I'm questioning the editorial staff who's going to have to back those assertions up down the road. So let's move on from Aziz Ansari to, this is a bit of old news about an older person. I was told that they didn't want to bring it up because I wasn't there, because this is a issue close to my heart. So you guys talked about the Globes, I'm assuming, and yes. the Me Too stuff, and we all saw that they honored 101-year-old actor Kirk Douglas. I'm assuming it was an honor. He just showed up and presented adapted screenplay. I don't really know why he was there. I mean, they tried to say that they were, like, honoring him because he was 100. For all we know, he could have just shown up or been wheeled into the auditorium. I don't know. I don't really know why he was there. But the point is, he was there. And it brought up a lot of issues, especially in the wake of Me Too. And I've mentioned it on the podcast. I did not mention him by name. But we all have been talking about it, so I feel like I can. Everybody on Twitter kind of was taken aback, people who know, because Kirk Douglas has always been accused of being a rapist. I don't believe the whole thing that he might have been a murderer. Um, that's a bit, it's a bit wonkier. That's a story that's out there. My mother, I guess, listened to a podcast that says Kirk Douglas, like, killed somebody. I don't necessarily believe that. It is a fascinating story if you Google it. It is easily Googleable. Okay. That is definitely one that I had not heard before. I had heard that. Yeah, it was a new one in my book. I was like, I knew Kirk Douglas was a scumbag, but like, I didn't know murder. Um, regardless, Kirk Douglas has been accused for years. There was a reference made in Suzanne Feinstead's biography of Natalie Wood that Natalie Wood, at, at uh, the age of 15, had been raped by a prominent actor-producer at the time. Everybody for years has assumed, and because the fact that people have referenced the Natalie Wood story and have never, people who knew, like Dennis Hopper knew, her sister Lana Wood knew, they've never named the person because they had said that he was still alive. Who do we know that's still alive? Kirk fucking Douglas. And the rumor is, is that it's him. There was even a really weird comment made on Gawker when Gawker was um, a thing that pretty much said that they knew that it was true, and the commenter was rumored to have been Robert Downey Jr. We never found out if it was true or not, but it was a very, very <laughs> weird time. Another fascinating story I had never heard before. Thank you, Google. Exactly, yeah. I remember when that happened. So the point is, is that there's always been this, this swirl of accusation. Kirk Douglas will tell you in his autobiography that he was once very aggressive, quote-unquote, with women. If you read any of the 
disturbing articles about like Kirk Douglas's conquest, which you're out there, a lot of his relationships kind of skirt the line of like coercion and abuse. So I have no trouble believing that, that this was true. Again, there were not a lot of actor producers in the 40s and 50s. Kirk Douglas was kind of it. So I have a real problem with that. I get the assumption is that everybody who's old enough to have been involved is long dead. And I hope to God that when Kirk Douglas finally dies, we'll like get a litany of people saying, oh yeah, it was totally him. Like, I'm sure Rita Moreno knows some stuff. Like, I know she knows, okay? So I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And it opened the floodgates for a lot of... I don't know if you guys knew this, but did you know that there are, like, a lot of die-hard Kirk Douglas fans and they're all men? <laughs> oh, yeah. I had this discussion with my father on Golden Globes night. I believe his response was, leave the old man alone. Yes, I got a couple of those. Oddly enough, when I asked these men to name their favorite Kirk Douglas movies, none of them could give me one. Oh, see, for me, it's always Spartacus. <laughs> I just assumed that these guys were just, like, douchey trolls that didn't really know shit. But I did get the, yeah, he's old, leave him alone. No. <laughs> no. Just because you're too old to commit a crime doesn't mean that you get off scot-free. And a lot of people that I talked to brought up, well, where's your evidence? Where's your evidence? I don't know if you know this, but evidence is really hard to produce in a rape case. You can have DNA, and that doesn't mean shit in the grand scheme of things. You can have a rape committed on tape it doesn't mean anything there's always a way to argue it so the evidence factor means nothing b natalie wood ain't gonna be resurrected anytime soon and i doubt kirk douglas is gonna give us a deathbed confession so really all we have is is what's in the book and i think what's in the book is very compelling mind you even in the natalie wood biopic if anybody's seen um the natalie wood movie with i think it's justine waddell guys probably a decade ago they recreate the rape scene and i will tell you the actor it's not a coincidence fucking looks like kirk douglas we all know it's the worst kept secret so yeah that's my rant um i hate kirk douglas and i don't really care <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> I think it does really say something about, you know, those these issues that, that Hollywood is grappling with right now because, you know, we and we've talked about I don't know if we actually talked about it on the podcast, but we talked about it in, in private before the um Loretti Young Clark Gable story. And there are all kinds of stories from, from classic from classic Hollywood. And again, you know, you, you go back to that if you if you were to have asked Clark Gable when it happened, did you rape her? She would have been like, No, of course I didn't. That would not have been in his wheelhouse because his behavior was, in his view and in her view, for a very, very long time, normal, acceptable. You know, this mm -hmm. is the way that men behave. This is the way that women behave. You look at the, the relationship between Jennifer Jones and David O. Selznick. Mm -hmm. uh, Selznick groomed Jennifer Jones, gave her a career manipulated her and told her that if she wanted that career to continue, she should marry him. Now, mind you, she was already married, but the impetus was, you should marry me if you want that to continue. And when she divorced Robert Walker, which drove him to an early grave... Destroyed him. I, I love Robert Walker. <laughs> Jennifer Jones ended up suffering a lifetime of mental illness. And you know, I still hear from film fans my age and younger who say, I hate Jennifer Jones. She's a big whore who sold her soul to David O. Selznick. And I'm like, look at the power dynamic there, yeah. guys. Like, yeah. Well, and it's it's those things, you know, we're talking about so much about consent and coercion and what that means and what it doesn't. So, 
these are the things we're going to have to grapple with and that we're going to have to grapple with about, I've said before, about our faves, about the people that, some of whom that we love, whose films mean a great deal to us. And we're going to have to deal with the fact that many of them, not all of them, but many of them have these things in their past that if you look at it in, in the, from a contemporary standpoint, it's like, this is fucked up. Even, I mean, with the David O. Selznick thing, even if you look at that from a not-contemporary standpoint, if you look at that from a standpoint of the 1940s, just like, nah, that's not okay. That's not nice behavior. It shows what I think we've all been saying when this started. This is not something that started overnight with Harvey Weinstein. This is something that goes back to the creation of cinema. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is something that Hollywood is going to have to deal with and that we as a society are going to have to deal with. It's ingrained in their culture. That's why it's, this is going to require a bottom-up. And, and it's going to take a lot of looking at very uncomfortable things, unfortunately. So, of course, we also have to say Michael Douglas is not getting off scot-free. <laughs> the Douglases have a problem. This sort of began rolling out not that long ago. Michael Douglas went to the deadline. Douglas went to deadline to preemptively deny allegations of sexual assault. I love that we can have like people just start preemptively... Being like, um, so somebody's gonna tell you I might have raped them. I didn't do it, but I might, you might hear that. Sexual misconduct that he had, like, that he had said inappropriate things to a woman that he had exposed himself to or all of these things. So he went to deadline to preemptively deny deny that these things had happened, which of course led everybody to begin going like, so did you do it, Michael? Did you? And now, of course, we are on, on Thursday, the Hollywood Reporter published a story detailing the accusations of the person of a journalist and author Susan Browdy who basically said you know he he exposed himself to her he made her feel very uncomfortable he made her frightened that there were going to be repercussions for his behavior that she saw him doing and that he did in front of her so this is just sort of an interesting one it's just a confirmation basically that yes Michael Douglas was defending preemptively defending himself from accusations that were about to surface which is sort of an interesting precedent and i can't wait to see who else preemptively defends themselves from something that they totally didn't do father like son that's all i got (laughs) and i've been in a room with michael douglas like i was fortunate i saw him last year at tcm introduce the china syndrome and i will tell you like it was a great talk but i was sitting there thinking like dude, I kind of wish they were asking you about other stuff. And this was before, like, this ever happened, so I don't know. Let's move away from Garbage Men. Not 100%, because I think this first thing in the news is is really interesting. So, Timothy Chalamet, our sweet baby angel, (laughs) our sweet little snowflake, who does not know any better, came out and said that he was using his salary from the movie that he had made with Woody Allen, was going to donate it to a couple LGBTQ uh, and and sexual assault or uh, organizations and he had mentioned in his statement that because of contractual obligations he wasn't allowed to give any specific thoughts and an article came out on Huffington Post today that pretty much says there's nothing in his contract that says that he does he has to remain silent about Woody Allen nor does it prevent him from supporting Dylan Farrow Um, so they're not really understanding why he felt the need to include that and I guess the snarky argument is is that he put this out 
on the deadline for the SAG Awards. And that he wanted to be able to kind of please all comers and say that he... He supports Me Too for all the people that are, like, pro Me Too movement, but also not talk shit about Woody Allen so that he doesn't alienate the people who still like Woody Allen. That is the argument. I took it, his his statement to mean that he wasn't allowed to talk shit about the movie, which I know in many contracts you're not allowed to do that when you're promoting it. You're not allowed to disparage the film, which uh, the article says that that's what they thought as well, and they looked at the contract and it says that really he can say what he wants as long as he's not saying that the movie is bad he can say that like Woody Allen's a dick. My issue here is that nobody so far who has been asked about Woody Allen who has worked with Woody Allen has outright said Woody Allen is a dick. Child molest- I mean nobody's like disparaging Woody Allen. They're saying they support Dylan Farrow, they believe her, but nobody's ever come out and said I totally believe these allegations. I think Woody Allen is a child molester. I don't really feel that we it's appropriate to give Chalamet crap for something that no one else is doing either. I mean, he could definitely come out and say, like, I support Dylan Farrow, and he should. He should do that. But if we're going to say that he's not being harsh on Woody Allen, we need to look at the litany of statements that have come out from people who have even said, I mean, Rebecca Hall says, you know, I don't want another woman mm-hmm. to feel silenced, but not one sentence of that statement says anything about Woody Allen specifically. Greta Gerwig's statement does not say anything about Woody Allen specifically. So I don't really know if we, if it's appropriate to give him that level of, like, crap. I don't know. Maybe I'm just seduced by the hair. Um, what do you guys think? <laughs> well, well, lest we mention Mr. Baldwin's statement, what, two days later? Right, right, that's the thing, is that, you know, we want to give poor little Timothy Chalamet, 22 years old, crap for not being hard on Woody Allen. Alec fucking Baldwin's worked with him three goddamn times, and he just walks through, and he's like, Woody, great guy, love him, this bitch is lying, Woody Allen's my best friend, my kids are gonna go spend the weekend with him, like, I totally trust him, much love. (laughs) I mean, like, really? Really? I mean, I'm not surprised, but... I don't feel like we don't we we don't have pitchforks ready for Alec Baldwin. Uh, Alec Baldwin's still gonna be. There will be no repercussions. He's still gonna be on TCM tomorrow, ruining the essentials for me. I mean, I agree. I'm not as I'm not as like intense about T- Timothy Chalamet uh, specifically, but um... I know it's gross and weird. I'm trying to fix <laughs> no, it. No, I I, I understand <laughs> it. He's legal, Dan. I, I know he's legal. It. It's just so creepy it. and gross. Uh... <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I think that that's a good point that no, no one who has come out in, in supporting Dylan Farrow or saying that, you know, I think Greta Gerwig said something about like, not wishing to contribute to the suffering of another woman and all that stuff, all of which is very good and very eloquent and very important. No one has said, I, you know, I think that Woody Allen is an asshole or I don't like Woody Allen or anything like that, which is also a fair statement in terms of some of these women had probably had very good experiences working with Woody Allen. I'm certain that Rebecca Hall did and and obviously did these films for a reason and probably one of the reasons was to work mm-hmm. with a very legendary director on films that they thought were important or that they thought, you know, could advance their careers, all kinds of things. So to then turn around and be like, well, Timothy Chalamet is lying about his contract. He shouldn't have lied about his contract. Or at least he should have been very specific about what he was saying. It's just like, I'm not going to disparage the film that I made, but I am going to donate. 
my salary and I wish I hadn't made the film now. That's a totally legitimate thing to say. What we need to do, and I think I might have said this the last time we talked about Woody Allen, is criticize the machine. Yeah. We have built up Woody Allen in the however many years he's been making films to be this auteur. We've made him this iconoclastic director that people want to work for. And now that the tide is finally turning, we're starting kind of with the pointless part. You know, you want to disparage the actors for working with him. I mean, at this point, I can't blame the actors for working with him. We have made him someone that they want to work with. We need to start criticizing Amazon for giving him the money to make this movie. Mm -hmm. These movies we've we've seen over the last, like, what, five years are not making their, their budget back. They're not making money. His films are getting smaller and smaller each right. time Right, so I'm not understanding why we're not criticizing the studio for continuing yeah. to take a chance and throw money at him. The fact that movie theaters are still booking his movies to play in their movie theater. I mean, we gotta start getting to person the financing, you know? All of that. As opposed to giving shit to an actor who's worked with him one time. Honestly, it's unfair to give shit to Chalamet because A, he's a 22-year-old kid. He's in the middle of what is a very probably challenging awards season race. And then he has got... This wasn't probably was not his decision. He's got agents, he's got managers, he's got publicists making these decisions for him. So somebody probably crafted that, someone crafted that statement for him. Someone probably decided what he was going to do. I mean, I don't want to throw up in my mouth a little bit, but how old was he when these allegations first came out with Dylan Farrow? <laughs> That's true. That's a valid question. I, I think he yeah. might be really young. Oh my God, we need to change the topic. <laughs> uh... But I I do want to say that's a really good point. It's not, the Dylan Farrow accusations have been around for a while. These, These are not new accusations. The stuff about Woody Allen, you know, I mean, he married his stepdaughter. I thought that would have been a problem for a lot of people. Turns out it really wasn't. It, well, exactly. All of these things have been around about Woody Allen for a very long time, and it's it's only now that I guess the reckoning is coming. But it is it does definitely beg the question, just like okay, why did the right why did the reckoning not come sooner? Why was this not a problem a year ago? But it's a problem now. Let's segue to hopefully. Nope, actually, no, this isn't positive. This is just sad. Um, this comes... <laughs> this is going to be a dark This one. comes courtesy of Women in Hollywood. It's looking at a report that looks at women's representation in films from 2017. It's an annual report that shows that women accounted for only 18% of directors, writers, producers, executive producers, editors, and cinematographers on 2017's top 250 films at the domestic box office, which is virtually the same percentage of women working in these roles 20 years ago. So even though we're seeing movies like Wonder Woman and Lady Bird and The Beguiled, where women are getting the chance to, their movies are being put into theaters wider, you know, they're, they're coming to us more. Women accounted for 11% of those who directed top 250 grossing films, which has only a 4% increase from 2016, but level with 2000. That's kind of depressing. I'm gonna go go sit in the corner and cry, excuse me. When people say, and I know Lauren and Karen were talking about this on Twitter, 
I'm sick of hearing from men predominantly who say, I can't think of any movie directed by a woman this year. And when you give them a litany of these movies, which I, everything that I think you guys mentioned I had seen, I definitely think that at this point, even though women are only directing 18%, producing 18% of these movies, the opportunity to see them now, there's no excuse not. Well, and women have to be exemplary. I mean, one of the reasons why we're talking about so many of these of these female directors right now is that they're making amazing films. Exactly. Like, these are not mediocre. These are not even B-picture, you know, sort of middle-of-the-road movies. These are remarkable films, some of them. Most of them. And even if there are a few that might have a few missteps in them, it's like they're far and away beyond what the vast majority of white male directors produce in a given year. It's, it's even less of an excuse. It's just like, yeah, these women have fought through all of this, and they're still making these brilliant fucking movies. There is no reason why, you are, why you're not seeing them. The only reason you're not seeing them is because you're a sexist. That's it. I will go into this later, but the screening week I have been on has been horrendous. And I just went on a very long rant on this in one of my reviews. Two years ago, because I looked up this quote, Kathleen Kennedy, and I've mentioned this in previous episodes before, was asked about why a female director hadn't done a Star Wars film. And she essentially used the merit argument, said that these were big films and that women needed experience. You know, a female director could do it if she had experience because they're not going to give it to an inexperienced director. Looking at Guardians of the Galaxy, looking at Jurassic Jurassic World, Colin Trevorrow had done what safety guaranteed before that. That had grossed $4 million on a budget of 750000 The two films James Gunn did before he got Guardians of the Galaxy were Slither and Super, which were made for $10 million at the absolute most. Mm-hmm. So women are expected to be exemplary the first time out you know meanwhile an up-and-coming male no-named male director both of the movies i saw this week were from first-time male directors who got large movies with large budgets and large casts and failed miserably on both of them well let's not our musical that we have this this year last year the greatest showman uh-huh. directed by michael gracie the fx guy handed the keys to make this big original musical And I think that that's really, really funny. Let's go all the way back to, like, a classic film, Return of the Jedi, directed by Richard Marquand, who had not made a huge movie until Return of the Jedi, and then made, like, low-budget thrillers after that. It goes all the way back to that. I mean, we don't give men movies based on merit we give them to them based on this piddly idea that because something they did that cost no money made money then that's good enough but a woman so and so's the hot new thing exactly but a woman has to make four times what the movie cost in order to even be considered for something Mm -hmm. big budget i mean it's it's the numbers don't add up there's a movie, uh, I, I was watching a, a review with, uh, I think it was Matt Atchity. The movie that's coming out this weekend, Forever My Girl, directed and written by yep. a woman. It's not good, but he said, <laughs> women should be allowed to make shitty movies. Men can make shitty movies. Uh, exactly, and I think that that's where we're at, is that we cannot say that every movie that a woman makes has to be good. Not every movie a man makes is good. Look at your god, man, Steven Spielberg. Not is every literally every movie you're saying is number one is a masterpiece because I know 
Y'all no. didn't see no. 1941, okay? Don't even, <laughs> don't even give me that, okay? You know, Tarantino. I love Tarantino. Not everything Tarantino makes is good. It's just not. Some of it's the hateful eight, no. okay? We have to allow women this opportunity to make subpar. Someday women and minorities will get to be as aggressively mediocre as white men. Let's jump into the new breed of movies coming out this year. It's Sundance week. Uh, unfortunately, me and Lauren are at <laughs> our houses. We will not be at Sundance. Um, Kimberly and Karen will be there. And if Army Hammer shows up, which I know he will be there because his Instagram says it, somebody needs to do something, okay? <laughs> just I will do my darndest for you. I just promise. tell him that there is a young lady named Kristen who has met Timothy Chalamet, and she loves him. <laughs> So, Sundance is happening. What are some films that we're excited to... Well, for me and Lauren, it's going to be here about until they eventually come out. So, I remember last year... Sunday. I remember last year hearing about Call Me By Your Name at Sundance. And everybody was saying it was amazing. And I was left to pine for it for several long months until November <laughs> when I went and saw it at AFI. So, yeah. What, what will I have to be jealous about? Um, Kimberly, you're going to be there. So what yes. are uh, three things that you're excited to go see? As I mentioned, I believe on our most anticipated, I, draw, I dropped a futile, a futile and Stupid Gesture is one of mine. I've gotten multiple emails from multiple publicists about that. And, you know, celebrity husband number one, Donald Gleason, is going to be there as well. So that is definitely the most thing I'm Our goal about. on Citizen Dame is to reunite every dame with the man she loves, except for Lauren, because hers are dead. <laughs> All of mine are dead. I'm sorry, Lauren. You need to find a live body. <laughs> Tom Hiddleston, like someone. someone oh, okay, okay. So we all yes. have a goal. We all have a goal. <laughs> Number two, I keep hearing, and I have an interview coming together. Um, Ophelia, a reimagining of Hamlet from Ophelia's perspective. Ooh. Daisy Ridley and Naomi Watts, directed by Claire McCarthy, who is has a little bit of work behind her and I should be having an interview with her at the festival so I am very excited to see that and then to name drop Army Hammer's movie Sorry to Bother You I, that's my number three so segue into my three that I'm excited for I am really excited I, I've been hearing about it Won't You Be My Neighbor the Mr. Rogers documentary Yes, I keep hearing about that one, too. I want to see that. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the documentary that they did about Big Bird a couple years ago, Carol Spinney. I got to interview Carol Spinney when that came out, and hearing Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch talk to me was just like, I freaked out. Um, it was literally one of my, I'm sad that that interview, when I, I upgraded my phone, I wasn't able to save that interview. Oh. I know, it was the saddest thing ever. So I'm really excited to see that. I am excited to see, or to hear more about, what is it, Misadventures of Cameron Post, the um, Chloe Moretz movie. That mm -hmm. sounds really good. And yeah, Sorry to Bother You is kind of my number one. I can't tell you why Boots Riley, the director, is following me on Twitter, but he and Tessa Thompson are, so I feel like that's, like, a thing. And I read the synopsis of the movie, and they had me at Army Hammer as a cocaine-snorting, orgy-producing, like, corporate executive. And I was just like, so what you're telling me is this is Army Hammer on a Tuesday, I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sign me up! Lauren, what about you? What are you excited to uh, eventually get to see that will be at Sundance? Uh, well, you know, with the festival circuit, I always feel like there are a bunch of films that I'm kind of like, oh, that I, I've never even heard of that and I have no idea what that's going to be about. And then there are always ones that end up being really interesting and stuff like that. Just of the ones that have been kind of thrown out there and, and listed, I'm kind of interested in this movie, Burden, which is about a, a young KKK member played by Garrett Hedlund who... As the synopsis says, he learns the error of his ways with the help of a preacher played by Forrest Whitaker. That has the potential of being kind of, we've got to save the racist white man. But I also really like Garrett Hedlund. I really like Forrest Whitaker. There's, there's the potential that it could actually be a very interesting film, particularly in this current political climate. Garrett Hedlund's doing some great he, work. He is, yeah. He's so good in Mudbound. I think he's a very underrated actor in a lot of ways. I, I, want, I want to see him do more films in that vein to actually begin to to move outside of this kind of secondary he's he's that other guy kind of uh actor rupert everett is playing a dying oscar wilde in the happy prince which oh my god i didn't know about that and i want that now. i am very excited to, to see and to hear about and uh, the Keira Knightley Colette film. Yes, definitely. I forgot about that yeah, one. Which is being directed by Wash uh, Westmoreland, who also directed um, Still Alice. Not a big fan of Keira Knightley, but the subject matter intrigues me. So I will be willing to go. <laughs> she gave some great interviews around that, too. She's been doing some good promotional work She for has, it. yeah. She's actually kind of risen in my estimation the more that I've seen her recently. Definitely. Well, we will be uh, at Sundance in some way. Uh, Karen and Kimberly will be there reporting on some stuff. Hopefully we can get them to share share some things that we can put on uh, online. I don't know. Definitely. We shall see. So moving on, masses aren't going to know this. I know everybody, if I said Avengers reboot, we would all know what, what, why it means something to Lauren. <laughs> so I'm going to let Lauren explain this idea that is very close to her heart that makes her feel very, very scared. I am so angry. I have been so angry for like the past week. The Avengers reboot. No, we are not talking about the Marvel Avengers. Those are not in fact the original Avengers. The original Avengers began in 1961 on British television. I say that they are the original Avengers because they premiered before Marvel ever got a hold of the name. So yeah, Shane Black, who uh, we know as being the director of Nice Guys and Iron Man 3 and the writer of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, is rebooting the Avengers television show from the 1960s that, that starred Patrick McNee as John Steed and several different people as his partners, the most famous in the United States at least being Diana Rigg as Emma Peel. So... Black is going to be rebooting this. They're still setting it in Britain in the 1960s. They're describing it as, and this pains me, the If Chris File meets Doctor Who, which is not what the Avengers is at all. No. Uh, so that's not right, and that upsets me and annoys me. Obviously, there was a 1998 film that starred Ray Fiennes and Uma Thurman, which was a complete disaster. And also... Doesn't exist. <laughs> I remember seeing that at the movie theater and being like, I've walked out of a movie theater twice <laughs> in my life. And it, what, the first time was that movie. I left. I stopped acknowledging the existence of that film. If anything, the only thing I acknowledge that feels like it might be similar is, what is it, Mimi Rogers dressing up like Diana Rigg in Austin Powers. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's about as close as we've gotten. Uh, Austin Powers, I think, actually owes a lot more to the Avengers than even it does to James Bond because of that. Because the mm-hmm. Avengers, if anyone has seen the show, it's it's particularly the Emma Peel series is very tongue in cheek. It's very like quirky 1960s extremity. All all of the villains are these mad scientists and uh, people who are trying to you know take over Britain and stuff like that. So it it is it's not a serious show particularly. There's serious elements to it. But yeah, the 1998 film is just a disaster. And in fact, was the reason why I did not actually watch the show for years and years and years, even though my parents kept on telling me that I would like it. Oh, you're kidding. You saw the movie before the show? Oh, yeah, I was a kid. I was like... Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, and my dad was like, no, we'll, we'll, watch, we'll watch the show. Just like, no, no, not going to do it. <laughs> I'm incredibly skeptical about this. This, this came out uh, this week, and of course, right... Right now, they're just writing a script. There's a pilot in the works. There's no casting news, nothing like that. I, I'm skeptical because the television show is so dependent upon the leads and is so dependent upon mm-hmm. this very... It is not John Steed and his feisty assistant. It is John Steed and his partner. And that dynamic, the gender dynamic, the relationship between the two of them is really the most important part of the story. I don't believe that Shane Black as a writer can do that. He doesn't write women very well. He he tends to err on the side of the buddy cop movie. And that's not, it's not going to work with the Avengers. And it's definitely not going to work to treat Emma Peel like a, like a Bond girl. That's not what she is. And that's not what she should be. So I would like for this to die, please. I would just don't, let's not talk about this ever again. (laughs) I mean, I will say just to, to throw out my two cents i have no connection to to the original show i saw the movie i know of the original show that being said i tend to like shane black stuff and i know that he's not one to write good female characters i think the best female character that he's written is gina davis in the long kiss goodnight and even that movie is not perfect but it is fun i'm cautiously interested if anything i'm interested in learning more about the original show so i mean if anything i think that helps but i would say check out the original show i hope he i'm with lauren i want this to die Jane black has like so many ideas and then like only like two percent of them ever come to fruition a message i tell hollywood pick up his doc savage movie and leave this alone keep him busy for a few years let's distract him please you know i'm this is a very small fandom and i would really just like to keep it that way i'm just like i i'm not (laughs) I'm not into this. Like, pretty much every other Avengers fan that I've spoken with has been like, no, absolutely not. Burn it to the ground. I saw my first episode of the Avengers when I was about six. Don't touch it. <laughs> but but Kristen, definitely, you need to watch this show. It's great. I will have to get to it. So you need some Emma Peel in your yeah. life. Since, since we're all classic film ladies, I thought this was worth uh, bringing up. Dorothy Malone, unfortunately, passed away uh, today at the time of recording. Uh, she was 92. Well-versed, you guys are in Dorothy Malone's films. Um, she was the bookstore owner in The Big Sleep that essentially sleeps with Humphrey Bogart at a certain point in the movie, um, although they <laughs> allude to it. She also was Robert Stack's sister in the very soapy Written on the Wind. She kills her husband, yeah. her father by doing the mambo. Well, actually, just watch Written on the Wind, because it's, like, amazing, and I love it. Um, That's a great film. (laughs) It's been a while. I need to rewatch it. And if you were a child of the 90s, you might remember her as uh, Sharon Stone's mom in Basic Instinct. But I I was very sad to hear this. Dorothy Malone is 
one of the last studio era, you know, actresses that we had mm-hmm. that was still alive. And I don't believe she went to a TCM film festival. I could be wrong about that, but I had always hoped that maybe she'd get out to one and I'm very sad. So I, I just wanted to bring that up because I know we all have favorite films of hers written on the wind. Like go, go watch that movie. Yeah. Do we all agree I, that's kind of like her career best? Definitely. I mean, probably. That, yeah. The scene in the big sleep, that she's, I mean, she's in one sequence and she just owns it. And the chemistry between her and Bogart is like, wow, what is going on, man? And this is a film, that's a film with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. So to say that there's a lot of chemistry between him and another actress is like, dang. Well, I think Dorothy Malone always played the slut. Even though she was slut shamed a lot, she had fun. So, I mean, you look at like her character in Written on the Wind. That's a character that has a lot of fun. And she is, like, slut-shamed at every turn. But she doesn't really care. Even in her uh, other Douglas Sirk movie, The Tarnished Angels, which is not that great of a movie, she still plays this character that is, like, chastised for being so sexual in just her appearance. It's not that she's actually doing anything. And if anything, she's pimped out by her husband, who is played by Robert Stack again. So yeah, I I always found her persona to be very interesting. I, I never felt that she was utilized to her full potential. It's a shame that she's gone, so. Yeah, Kirk Douglas lives. Um, So let's get into some trailers, some trailer talk. Two trailers came out. One of them was for Tully, the long in the making reteaming of director Jason Reitman and screenwriter Diablo Cody. They came together and uh, were nominated for an Oscar for Juno a couple years ago, and they are back with this movie with Charlize Theron, who plays a frazzled mother of three, who takes on a nanny played by Mackenzie Davis, who does something, we're not really sure. Um, The trailer gives no real indication of anything. I don't know how I feel about the trailer. This movie, again, I think was made made last year, did not come out this last year, it's supposed to come out sometime this year. I heard that it had not had very good test screenings. The trailer seems intentionally misleading because it plays up Charlize Theron as this frazzled mother whose husband obviously is an idiot who doesn't understand what she's going through, and then Mackenzie Davis shows up as like this magical Mary Poppins. Yet the images that they released imply that there's some sort of weird stalker element or possibly like, I don't know, weird lesbian vibe? I don't know what to do with this movie. I like Juno a lot. I don't think Juno has aged very well, but I liked it a lot and I still enjoy it when it's on. I don't think Jason Reitman's made a good movie in about three years, but I mean, I'm interested in this. What did what did you guys all think? I was a little underwhelmed. I mean, the only t- the, t- the moment in the trailer that still sticks with me that I actually did laugh is she drops the cell phone on the baby. That was really <laughs> funny. Just well-timed. I'm like, okay, that's something I could totally see myself just doing. I agree with you. I think it seems there. there's a twist. There's an ooh, what a twist moment there coming up somewhere. I'm hot and cold with Reitman. I mean, Thank You for Smoking is still one of my favorites. Uh, Diablo mm-hmm. Cody, I've never grown an affinity for. I just, I don't have an opinion. I haven't felt that strongly about most of a lot of work she's done, so I can't really speak well to it. I'll probably go see it, but it's the trailer I know didn't impress me. The trailer I found intriguing. I hadn't actually heard anything about this, so I didn't know about the the bad test screenings or anything like that. I like the the actors. It does seem to be one of those that it, it the trailer gives the impression that it looks like it could go either way. It could either be one of these like 
sort of twisted Mary Poppins stories, um, or it could be actually a very sweet story, or it could be a combination. Given the director and the writer, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a combination. But I like Charlize Theron. I'd be willing to see where this went. Mind you, I mean, I I liked the last Charlize Theron, Jason Reitman movie. I did like Young Adult. I haven't watched Young Adult since it came out, but I remember liking it in the moment. Um, Jason Reitman filmed this back-to-back with The Front Runner, which is a movie I know that we're all excited for, the Gary Hart movie with Hugh Jackman. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see, um, again, Jason Reitman's hit and miss. He still owes me for Labor Day, and I will come to collect that money one day, Jason. (laughs) I'm assuming he's listening. Um, This is uh, supposed to come out April 20th, so you can uh, hopefully see what all the hubbub is about. A trailer that I did not want to ever have to watch, but people sent it to me, and I felt that I had to watch it, is a movie that's actually going to Sundance. So Karen and Kimberly will be on hand to tell me how pissed I can be. I don't know. You probably aren't going to see it, but somebody can like talk to a friend who saw it and then tell me how pissed I'm going to be. I have already seen certain people and a certain person you know, Kristen, on Twitter talking, raving about it, so. (laughs) Fuck. Um, It's the uh, movie He Won't Get Far on Foot. This is the new movie from Gus Van Zandt with Joaquin Phoenix's John Callahan, who was a paralyzed man who became a disabled rights activist, Um, and it tells about his life with people like Jonah Hill in it. I watched the trailer for this, and it seemed like every other, like, ha-ha-ha cripple movie that we've seen. Like, oh, this guy's got problems. Oh, he's got drinking issues. Because, you know, all we do is booze and talk about how shitty our life is. And, oh, look, he fell out of his wheelchair. Isn't that funny? Actually, no, it's not. I've done it twice, and it's not fucking funny every time it happens. I'm a little mad. I hate movies already that deal with, like there's a contingent of disabled rights activists who hate the concept of quote-unquote cripping up where you have able-bodied actors play disabled performers i don't necessarily immediately say any movie where an able-bodied person is playing a disabled character is automatically like horribly offensive i don't feel that way personally i know a lot of people do and, and rightfully so i have an issue when you do not do your due diligence and you write a movie where you know next to nothing about disabled life And I'm so sick of seeing, as I've mentioned to numerous people, white dude, handicapped late in life, because, you know, you need to have a a way to understand the strange mystery of us handicapped people. So you need to have, like, moments of watching this guy be able-bodied before it's, like, ripped savagely from him. And then watch him try to, like, cope with the help of other able-bodied people. I have an issue with that storyline, which is exactly what this movie seems to be about. Stronger, as much as I I don't feel it deserves a pat on the back and a chuck under the chin, at least attempted to get at something that seemed relatable in terms of how we, like, deify people who have suffered. I did like that element, but at the same time, and I felt like they actually did research. It helps if you have the real person. John Callahan is no longer with us. I feel like this movie is just one of those, like, oh, this quirky guy who just happened to be in a wheelchair and like went through some shit and comes out the other side like no it is 2018 when are we going to get a movie about a disabled person who's just disabled i mean like why can't why can't tully the charlotte's theron movie have a character who's handicapped like why why not 
I don't know why. That's what I want to know. Why does any movie about disability, you as a writer, you don't have to do any work because you already have stakes, plot, consequence. You find a true story about some cripple person and you don't have to do anything else. Like the story is written. The story is disability. Why are we still doing that? Like, ugh. and I like Gus Van Zandt. Like, why does he have to hurt me like this? Why? How do you guys feel? I mean, you guys are able-bodied, you know. <laughs> I don't know if I could follow that. <laughs> Take I away just... from my cripple rage. <laughs> it didn't impress me at all. It seems like, I mean, every Joaquin Phoenix is getting a lot of shit, and he walks right into it with the persona and the roles he's choosing. The only thing, honestly, that impressed me with that entire, entire trailer was uh, Jonah Hill, and that was because I didn't recognize him until I saw his name. I had a kind of, oh shit, that's Jonah Hill moment, and I don't know if I would even go see that. This comes out May 11th, and I'm just gonna say, if we had to change whatever the title was to Roman J. Israel Esquire, because we thought Roman J. Israel Esquire sounded better, Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot is a shitty-ass title, and it really Uh grossly offends me, too. I mean, like... Yeah, yeah, we're acknowledging that he's handicapped. Why why don't we just call him Cripple Magoo in his wheelchair? I mean, <laughs> oh my god. I had somebody tell me that I should write, like, a disabled story for film. They wouldn't film it because it'd be boring. It would just be like, you, you guys want to know my day? I struggle to make scrambled eggs for 15 minutes because I have to try to reach everything in my house that's not designed for me. And then I eat those eggs, and then I spend my whole day writing, and then I feed my dogs, I go run errands. Like, my life is boring. Guess what? 90% of disabled people's lives, boring as shit. We're just like you guys, okay? Ugh, I hate having to have this discussion in 2018. Hollywood, get it together. This is actually a great segue into our question that came (laughs) courtesy of Lauren, but it was inspired by me. The question is, is it necessary as a critic to mention, in my opinion, while giving film opinions? So this came about because I was arguing about some about three billboards with with a crit, with a friend, a former friend. I had to unfriend him because he pissed me off. Who argued that, that he hated critics because we state our opinion as fact, and that because I referred to other critics who agreed with me, I was stating facts. I was like we were going around the circle and one of my friends jumped in and said so you feel that every critic needs to write in my opinion while saying anything i obviously say no you do not have to preface a is just good writing if you have to say in the beginning of every paragraph in my opinion that's shitty writing 101 any english teacher would tell you we already know we're reading a thesis you put a thesis out here you're explaining it you don't need to say, in my opinion, I feel... It's why when you take, like, third grade English, they say, start with I think, put the sentence in, and then cross out I think, and just go with that. As a person online, anytime we tweet something, it's our opinion. That goes without saying. So I don't really understand why, when people want to argue with critics, they, they assume that we're touting facts. That's not what we're doing. Lauren, Kimberly, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that 
the whole like, well, you're treating your opinion as fact tends to be rolled out when someone has decided that they really disagree with you, but they don't actually have any comprehensive or intelligent analysis to respond with. So they're, they're just like, well, but you're, you think that your opinion is fact. It's just like, but it, no, not at all. Like it's, it's like me saying, I don't like Blade Runner 2049. Here's why. Right. And I explain why I don't like it. Now, that's my opinion. That doesn't mean that that is the be-all and end-all truth of, the, of that film. But for someone to then turn around and say to me, like, well, but other people think differently, just like, of course they do. That's, that's a fact of what is going on here. You know, it's, it's, it's a very weird sort of defense, defensive movement. And, and it winds up basically putting the critic in the position of having to defend their perspective and being like, oh, no, it's not fact. And then it's like, oh, you're saying you're saying something that isn't fact. It's like, what? But I, I liked the movie. Like, that's about it. It's a goddamn opinion. It's called a <laughs> review for a reason. No, we don't have to say in my opinion because the entire thing is our opinion. A particular movie I saw this week, I had an absolute blast at and thought it was absolutely amazing. Will everybody agree with that? No. I mean, I, I truly avoid trying to pronounce something necessarily a good or a bad film in my review because I've liked plenty of terrible, I've loved plenty of terrible films and I've hated plenty of ones that are universally regarded as amazing. No mm -hmm. one is going to have the same opinion. You know, the only re reviews are reviews because people go and they write their opinion, but it's like, feel free to disagree with them. Point of a critic is... We watch a lot of movies. You watch a lot of movies and you have an informed opinion, yes. yes. So, so when you sit down and do an analysis of something and when you're saying like, okay, this is why I think this works for me, or this is why I think it doesn't, you probably have a deeper set of analytical, you have a stronger analytical framework than just someone who goes in and says, I like this, I don't like that. Right. I feel like that there's almost this lack of intellectual investigation in making some of these claims of saying, of saying that your analysis has to be factually based. It has to be based in what you see on the screen. But it's, it's still going to come down to, this is how I choose to interpret this film. Like, that's what it's going to be, no matter no matter who you talk to. And there are going to be 50,000 interpretations of it. And that's okay. That's part of the fun of art. I will say my favorite criticism on one, I on my uh, Last Jedi review, someone in one of the comments had just written wrong, all in caps. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, all right. Yeah, that's well, the thank thing. You. And, and if anything, I mean, in regards to this specific instance, I was saying many critics agree with me as a point of saying I'm not talking out of my ass. And I recommend you go read other critics who agree with what I'm saying. I use other critics as like a bibliography. It's, you know, it goes back to my academic, Cite you know, part sources. of my life. Yeah, exactly. As a woman online, we are required to like, again, back up our assertions. I'm so ready to be done with award season so that I <laughs> yeah. never have to talk about three billboards again. <laughs> it, and it pains me that Ben Mankiewicz is a big fan of it. And I love Ben Mankiewicz on TCM. And I feel like when I see him in April, we're going to have to fight about that. It might ruin our relationship. <laughs> so let's get to our last section. Um, there was not a movie to review because we are still in hell, otherwise known as January at the movie theater. <laughs> oh, and I was there. <laughs> Uh, I will say, and I'm going to let Kimberly start, because she recommended something. It's a movie pass movie, so I'm not going to feel too bad if I go see it. So we're going to do a nice little uh, quick what you've been watching of stuff we've been watching. So Kimberly, what move, What have you been watching lately that you recommend? 
This week was three movies, 12 Strong, Den of Thieves, and Maze Runner 3. I'm you gonna... are the only one going to see mainstream movies at the theater that are out this week. <laughs> you are doing a public service. <laughs> and oh dear, was I. So, long story short, 12 Strong, boring. Chris Hemsworth leaves. And, and Hemsworth doesn't take his shirt off. He does not take his shirt off. What? He's, you know, What's he's, the point? He's likable Hemsworthy self, but the movie wastes Michael Shannon. I didn't know if that was even possible. The man is always so over the top and just just Michael Shannon-y in every movie. And he looks Even bored. in Kangaroo Jack. <laughs> yeah, Michael Shannon's in that in case you guys he all did. didn't he know was, that. Yes, I, I, <laughs> and he throws out his back halfway through the film and is just laying there pretty much the entire time. It's, he's so bored he can't even stand up in this movie. However, I would like to get to Den of Thieves. <laughs> Mom and I are going to see this movie because I showed her the trailer and I told her that you said there were laughs, but you were unclear. You don't think it was meant to be a comedy. And my mom said, book it, we're going. <laughs> it was the strangest thing because, I mean, you know, the marketing for that, you're it, it, they're going for fast and the furious-y, urban, gritty, you know. Very point break robbery. meets like armored. 50 Cent and, you know, Gerard Butler, who's known for his amazing film choices. And it starts out, there There were just moments throughout, the one that sticks with me, I've cited it a few times, I cited it in my review, in the opening sequence there's a robbery and somebody draws their weapon and the res- he goes, there are armor-piercing rounds chambered in this firearm. Thank you for sharing that information <laughs> with me! <laughs> And then they cut to the after, the, you know, the police at this crime scene, and Gerard Butler walks up and goes, good morning, fellow officers. Which, by the way, my mom thought that was Russell Crowe for a second, and I said, well, by this point, they're interchangeable, so. Oh, it's been so long since Phantom of the Opera. It's like, oh, ages. It's, I feel so old watching him in that movie. There are these laughs throughout, and usually it's tied to just an awkward line like the ones i'm given it wasn't just mila i mean i was sitting there laughing hysterically at some of these parts but it was a packed screening and people were having an absolutely great time i will say as we talk about how men are just gifted with movies the director of den of thieves christian goodgast this is his directorial debut he was given this movie after writing such luminous films yeah. as Thank you. A Man Apart and London Has Fallen. Exactly. Oh yes, that justifies him to get, you know, as a worthy candidate to get a large cast, lots of, you know, gunfire squid budgets. You know, it's baffles me because 12 Strong was a first time director as well. I mean, I get like O'Shea Jackson Jr. wants to diversify. He did Straight out of Compton, he was really good in Ingrid Goes West, and now he wants to make the action picture. Just no, no, you know, no. <laughs> but I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go. I am a fan, like, I like shitty 80s-esque action films. I will tell you, Olympus Has Fallen, I had a lot of fun with that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, London Has Fallen is a racist piece of shit. So I hope this is the same. Although, does it justify being two hours and 20 minutes? It is 10 minutes longer than Phantom Thread. I will tell you, it didn't feel that. You know, and it doesn't come out for another week. But I saw Maze Runner 3 and that felt much longer than it's two hours and 20 minutes. 
got surprisingly not bored after Den of Thieves. I walked out, I was talking to the press rep, and my exact response was, I loved it in spite of myself. <laughs> yep, that sounds about right for January. <laughs> and really, that's about all you can expect in a January movie. That's high praise, okay? You're not gonna get, like truly good reviews like i genuinely thought that was good until at least the end of february i mean it was a piece of shit but it was a fun piece of shit (laughs) that's like high praise that's like give it all the oscars at this point so yeah i'm excited we're gonna go see that i will give you my take when i see it as for me i have been uh watching a lot of ida lupino movies because lauren it will tell you i'm planning series on my podcast about ida lupino and i'm also writing a profile on Ida Lupino for TCM Backlot. So I decided that I would be ambitious and watch as many of her movies as I could find. Turns out that means I can I found 43. YouTube is a really great resource for Ida Lupino movies. So I'm into her early work in the 30s, and it's really interesting to see Ida Lupino in the 30s. I did not know she was British. Yes, I probably should have known that, but she made a lot of British films early in her career, and Some of them aren't good, like the ghost camera. I mean, she started out as playing like this blonde Una Merkel meets Jean Harlow figure, kind of like always man crazy, dating, looking for married men, but she's cute. And I'm watching a movie right now called I Lived With You, which Ida Lupino is not the reason to watch it. Um, It's from 1933, you can watch it on YouTube. But it's got Ivor Novello in it, who I'd never seen a movie from. He's more commonly known for people who've seen the original The Lodger. Yeah. And he's hilarious in this movie. A, it's 1933 and it's Britain, so so the code was different. And so it's really, really racy. I mean, they say, like, damn in, in these movies. And I was like, oh my god. This is 33, guys. We don't have that kind of language. But he's, like, implying that Ida Lupino's character is a slut, and he's making jokes about how, like, it's insane. And his character is really, like, a fey Russian oligarch that's kind of, like, taking advantage of everybody. It's a really funny movie, though. I was really surprised um, by how much I enjoyed it. So it's all on YouTube. A lot of her stuff is on there. So I'm really eager to see how she transitions from playing this kind of flighty, daffy pre-code princess into the hard scrabble you know starring lady of noirs who would end up directing i mean it's just it's fascinating right now so i'm excited to uh to watch those lauren what have you been watching lately i got a a blu-ray screener for a film that i managed to miss out on last year and so i was just like oh this will be interesting this will be fun um the killing of a sacred deer yes (laughs) i still need to watch that there is absolutely no way that I can spoil this movie for you because I have no idea what it is about. <laughs> I can tell you what it's about. I know what it's about, but I don't know what it's about. How well versed are you in Greek myths? I, I know some mythology, but there's definitely a mythological aspect to it. You know, I've, my roommate said to me that, you know, someone that, that he knew wrote a piece about, like, this is a, about a man trying to play God and a boy trying to play the devil. There's all sorts of stuff that's going on in this movie, but I was, I was sitting there going like, I don't, I don't, okay, all right, that, and, and now we're eating pasta. All right, good. (laughs) So I'm, I'm struggling to figure out how exactly I'm supposed to write a review for this because I have no idea if I liked it or not. Those are the worst. (laughs) I felt exactly the same way. I saw this in a theater. I saw this when uh, we did a press screening. And I can tell you the review I wrote is just like the biggest bunch of drivel because I had no idea how to discuss this film. I am not a huge fan of of Yorgos Lanthimos. 
I've seen the lobster and I, I remember liking it, but I wasn't obsessed with it like most people are. Yorgos Lanthimos is like Luca Guadagnino to me, okay? Like, people just, like, lose their mind over his, those movies. And I wasn't sure if I was supposed to take this as a comedy, as a drama, as a horror film. I think you're supposed to take it as all of it. Yeah. I did like Nicole Kidman a lot. I'm not even going to pronounce the kid's last name because I know what I always get it wrong. Um, uh, Barry Keegan? Yes, yes. That kid, um, I thought he was great. Scariest spaghetti-eating scene ever. I even really liked seeing Alicia Silverstone in this movie. I forgot I missed her. <laughs> Who I did not recognize at all. I was watching I was just like, that's that's Alicia Silverstone. Yep, I, she could still get Colin Farrell at this age. She could. <laughs> but, I mean, I was noticing things that were popping up. Like, there's a stray reference to Iphigenia. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I know that because I'm a nerd. So I know about, like, you know, Troy and the king sacrificing his daughter for the sake of the war. Okay, I get that. And then I knew about, you know, the Iliad. And I get what Lanthimos is saying. I just don't know if that necessarily makes a good movie. I mean, maybe it's it's just me and watching this film. I, I instantly began moving towards Christian mythology. I mean, even the way that Colin Farrell is presented as being this this great bearded man in a white coat, you know, there's there's definitely a Christian mythos going on there. And there were several points where I was like, you know, is this uh, is this intended to be read as kind of um, Abraham and Isaac? Is that the direction that we are going? Uh, which is not the direction they were going. So I, I think that there's a lot of stuff that's overlapping in the film. I honestly do not know if it works. I have been thinking about this film for three days, and I still don't know if it actually, the pieces fit together in the way that they need to in order to make a really cohesive film, even if it's obscure. I love, personally, that you're following this up with what film? <laughs> I feel that needs to be shared. <laughs> Right now, I've got 15 minutes left because I must know, I must know if he did indeed give Mr. Police all the clues. I am watching The Snowman. You are a saint for watching this movie. I love this movie. It is my everything. It is a surrealist masterpiece. I don't know why people were so like, oh, you know, this, as I was saying earlier, this film is not hung up on things like continuity. Or, you know, <laughs> or, or logic, or logic, or you know, <laughs> plot structure, or anything like that. This film is like it, it exceeds that. It's gone beyond that. We're on a different plane here. It is only the greatest film of 2017. So, just and I believe I was the only one who reviewed it, and I believe I called it a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you! I, know, I do right? hope that Lauren writes and reviews it because that would be amazing. No, I, I need to read this. I would love that because <laughs> I think it's. I think we need to hear the thoughts from someone who had fun with it. The movie's yeah. publicity team would probably love to hear it as well. Oh, they would put Lauren all over the box. It would be <laughs> yeah. like a masterpiece. Best thing I ever saw. Better I... than Citizen Kane, Lauren Humphreys Brooks. They'll be, go <laughs> they'll be going, surrealist masterpiece. Why didn't we think of that? <laughs> exactly. That's really They're like, give it to this girl. That's how this film should have been marketed. Like, just like, it no, should no, have it's been. supposed to be like this. <laughs> We can't top that. That's going to close out this edition of Citizen Dame. You can listen to us on citizendame.podbean.com. You can also listen to us on Stitcher Radio, and you can also listen to us on iTunes. And if you are listening on iTunes, please leave us uh, a rating or a review. 
either one is much appreciated. We'd love it, love to hear from you. You can also visit us on our new website. That's right, Citizen Dame has a website now. It is citizendamepod.com. We will be posting episodes and written content right now. Uh, you can read our top five movies that we've watched for people we love. It is a confessional of crap that we have endured and owned. Oh, yes. We'll also be talking, by the time this episode comes out, you can hear our top five movies that we, that helped us discover people we love. So that should be interesting. We're going to do more stuff on there, hopefully give you guys some uh, nice little addendums so that during the week when you don't have Citizen Day, you at least have something from us. And if you happen to vote in the poll that was on the Twitter, we appreciate that very much. We got a whopping uh, 60 votes from people that we're deciding what movie we were going to do for our project. We are going to be starting a once a month project called What I Did for Love, which is essentially us watching a crappy movie and discussing it in some form. Uh, the individual will be writing some some means of purging this film from their soul, whether it's <laughs> diary or however, any way they want. The sky's the limit. I think it'll be interesting to see how we uh, all attempt to review what we had. Um, the choices were Lauren brought forward Earth Girls Are Easy, Kimberly brought forward Terminator Genesis, or Genesis as I call it. Yeah. Karen had suggested Harsh Times, and I had suggested Charlie's Angels 2 Full Throttle. Apparently there are a lot of people that love that movie because it won. <laughs> so I will be watching that and you will be getting to hear my thoughts about how I despise it. Um, but Justin Thoreau's hot. So hopefully it won't be a total loss. Um, that should be up uh, on February 1st. That will be, again, a month-long series. So the ep movies that did not win will carry over to uh, the next month. So the second place winner will be reviewed in March, third place in April, so on and so forth. So that will, again, be something you can read from us. If you have suggestions for things that you want to see on the website, you can contact us through the contact form on there or get in touch with us. And you can always uh, send your comments, questions, suggestions, what have you, to our Twitter, which is at citizendamepod.com, or you can get in touch with us individually. As always, you can contact me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Karen, you can reach at at Karen M. Peterson. Lauren, where are you on Twitter? I am at LH Business. And Kimberly? Pierce624. So that's going to close out this edition of Citizen Day. We'll see you all next week. Right. Where is it? Where's what? The body. The body? Hmm. The corpus delecti. Well, I'm not particular. It could be stabbed, strangled, riddled with bullets, mutilated beyond recognition. You're quite right until we find a body. We've nothing to investigate. We're defunct. Obsolete. Out of business. Something's bound to turn up. There's always a body hanging around somewhere. After all, it's only one body, Winnie. I remember discovering three in one night. One was in the closet, another one was underneath the bed, and the third one arrived on my breakfast tray. It was a four-star hotel. Steve, it'll be a crime if we don't find a body. It'll be a crime if we do. Ah, but then I get a chance to exercise my feminine wiles.